you grab your Bibles with me, turn to the New Testament epistle named Titus. We're joyful as a church to be spending time thoroughly on Sundays right now in this letter. And in my pre-planning and prayerful preparation for the series, I had seen how it might be possible to be near this passage uh, on Holy Week and grateful that it worked out. Um, to be this way. Um, I think tonight and Sunday, you'll see why the uniqueness of preaching this passage on, uh, on these days is unique, but it allows us to continue faithfully in the series we're in. And again, maybe you who are new or visiting would be joyful to return and continue to, to journey in God's word with us. Look with me as we focus tonight on Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through five, Paul speaks these words to Titus and says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. Verse 3 here offers a sobering reminder of our former state prior to Christ. For those who belong to Christ, who have been given by God's grace saving faith. That means you've confessed your sin to the holy God and seen and savored the work of Jesus in your place to the degree by which you not only believe that he's real and these things happened, but you believe into him, you trust your life to him, you belong to him. Salvation in Christ is to die to self and belong to Christ. It's to serve him as our master. It's to glorify him with our days. And so Paul is speaking to another shepherd, Titus, and, and in this reminiscing, we ourselves were once like this prior to salvation. And we relate. Paul's look back, though, on the condition of someone who is still lost in sin and separated from Christ is not meant to be nostalgic or a fun trip down memory lane. It's instead meant to serve as a bleak, dire, sad, despairing view of who we were in sin. And that could be in the midst of great financial success and a big family and an awesome life. These truths are still true of us apart from Christ. This is the very reason why the cross of Jesus was necessary. These things and things like it. It is a view of our spiritually lifeless life. Although physically alive, it reminds us of our wicked alliances, our selfish priorities, and our guilt before a holy God. It's a reminder of the eternal wages that do this sin by that holy God. Church, I pray that we would all lean in tonight and remember the depth and the width of our depraved condition because of our sin 
And what a fitting passage to lead us to the cross of our Savior tonight. Before we get to why we call this Good Friday, let's have in full view why this was the blackest day in human history. And in this, my prayer is that we would not think too lightly of our sin. For he, Spurgeon once said, he who thinks too lightly of his sin thinks too lightly of his Savior, of our need for a Savior. Oh, how we needed a Savior. Look at these with me, one by one, briefly. For we ourselves were once foolish, he begins. Foolishness, understand, is not about a lack of education. It's about rejecting truth. It's about seeing or knowing the right way and then turning to choose the wrong way. That's foolishness. Many of the most educated, brilliant minds in our society are utterly foolish, for they know the one true God, but they choose in their sin and rebellion to reject him. Paul said this clearly in Romans chapter 1, 18-25. It's true of all mankind. It says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his indivisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping images. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. All of mankind knows that God exists because he reveals himself to us in his magnificent creation and the work of his divine attributes in his governing of that creation. Man is therefore foolish to reject him and pursue worship and identity and value and joy in creation over having those things in the creator. It's the epitome of foolishness. This is the core of our guilt and our sinful rejection of God and all that he is rightly due. 
For we ourselves were once foolish. Next, he says that we ourselves were once disobedient. The pride of fallen man's heart means gross disobedience to God, who is the authority, the right authority, the worthy authority. In the Word of Truth Catechism, question 33, what is sin? Tonight is about dealing with pain for sin. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God. Sin is any disobedience in heart or deed to God's perfect law and commands. Disobedience is indeed is doing or saying what God forbids or not doing or saying what God commands. Disobedience in heart is having the wrong state of mind or motivation or desires behind what we do or feel. Sin is often disobedience to God's commands. Sin can also be obedience to God's commands. Watch this. For the wrong reasons, thereby still dishonoring him. Sin is often communicated in our day in terms of making mistakes and making poor choices. But while that's true of all sin, it's so shallow. We have to do business with the fact that an act of disobedience against a holy and deserving God is a much better view. And because of who he is, our betrayal of him is a big deal. R.C. Sproul famously once said, sin is cosmic treason. Meaning even the slightest sin that a creature commits against the creator does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, his righteousness, what he's rightly due and respect and honor from his creation. We have to understand that every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over us. It's an act of treason against the cosmic king. And maybe we saw no more clear Example of this than in the first sin. He was clear to say, to command, to not eat of a certain fruit of a certain tree. And they chose to disobey him and eat it anyway. The domino effect meant the fall of mankind. You can't look at the simplicity of the act and go, they just ate a piece of fruit and then reason it to be okay. You have to see who it's against to understand how massive the offense is. James brings further clarity to the necessary strictness of our obedience to God. 
James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law, all of it, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Instead of just viewing this immaturely as that sounds too strict, you got to see why it's strict. It's because of God's holiness, and it requires the standard of complete perfection. Because if not, if God, who is holy, laxes the standard of perfection to have fellowship, then he, his appeasing of sin compromises his holiness, which cannot be. It's not until we understand who God is that we gain a real understanding and appreciation of the seriousness of our sin. Not until we take God seriously will we ever take sin seriously. And maybe for some of you who know the narrative of Good Friday, maybe tonight this is the business God wants you to do with him. Is in one side you'll say, this means so much. Look at what God has done. I'm so committed to him. And then on another side, be so casual with your gross disobedience to him in different things. And thereby essentially neglecting what really the cross was needed for. It's not until we understand who God is that we gain that deep appreciation for our sin and begin to take sin seriously. If we acknowledge the righteous character of God, then we, like the saints of old, will cover our mouths with our hands and repent in dust and ashes before him. We ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. And next he says, led astray. The sinful and fleshly heart prior to Salvation, prior to regeneration, spirit dwelling, the, the fleshly heart loves to be led astray. It, it, it sat by the phone waiting for the seduction's phone call, for the temptation's call. Please understand, to be led astray is to give in to temptation. It is to be seduced. The flesh that is not combated with the Holy Spirit is so ready to give in to seduction. Listen to Solomon's warning to his beloved son about the disaster caused by seduction to sin. He says, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander. She does not even know it. And now listen, O son, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. 
Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. Think about this with me. When our flesh is at the helm, it doesn't enjoy freedom like it thinks it does. When our flesh is at the helm, it loves enslavement. This is Paul's next point. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Our sin causes us to heap our worship on creation. We read this in that Romans 1 passage. Paul so eloquently, rightly described. As a result of this, the idol factory in our fleshly heart begins to churn out idols. John Calvin, the 17th century reformer, made the memorable point, our hearts are idol factories and our words and actions are shaped by the pursuit of things our hearts crave. Paul calls this, these cravings earthly longings in his letter to the church in Colossae, Colossians 3.5. He says, put to death whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Many of these things are innately wicked in and of themselves, clearly evil, clearly betraying God. But others are more sneaky because even the good things we long for in this life or overgrip can become some of our greatest sinful trappings. John Calvin once famously said, the evil in our desire does not lie in what we want, but in that we want it too much. And it becomes consuming, and we begin to live for it. We begin to make an idol of it. Even if you don't call it that. Even if you want to deny that's what it is. We can take good things, righteous things, and overinflate them to the point by which we begin to find our hope, our identity, our significance, our purpose, our security in them rather than in God, our creator. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 125, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The fact that we go so far in our sinful devotion to created things or people we love, to turn, we turn to worship, we turn to service. And this then therefore points to how we become enslaved. 
in our flesh, we become a slave to our idols, and they actually begin to control us. In this, we begin to serve them. They become functional, counterfeit gods. They become our masters. And here lies the irony. For all those who intentionally say no to God because they want to be in control of their own lives and do not want to be controlled by God. But in our sin, we inevitably turn to something in creation. We turn it into an idol of our heart, and in return, it controls and enslaves me. The intention in the beginning is you think you can control it. I got this. But it gains power. It gains priority over you. And in the end, it consumes you. It controls you. And so you become a slave. You become addicted. Can't stop thinking about it. Can't stop working for it will compromise other things to keep it in play. Money becomes an idol because it becomes more fundamental to our joy than God. Money says, it promotes, you'll finally enjoy life if you have more of me. You'll amount to somebody. You'll be secure with more money. And so you work yourself to death, even at the cost of family, ministry, friendships. We put cash on the throne in our hearts and we make it king. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. For once, passing our days in malice and envy. Malice could maybe better translated here, evil or wickedness. He's speaking to a way we did life prior to Christ. He's describing the way we walked, talked. A, a mode of operation that was essentially wicked. Now, when you hear walking in wickedness, be careful because what you might be thinking of is a witch or a Satan worshiper. You're like, oh, no, crazy people. Like, no, 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 no. I'm not like that. But we have to see that our wicked ways are not extreme like that necessarily. They're often very subtle and even perceived as good things. But all things that are not said or done to the glory of God are indeed wicked. It robs the creator of what he's due. It puts the purpose of the aim of that good thing I'm doing, that thing I'm working really hard for, on creation. And it excludes the one who's worthy of the why we do it. 
Paul says it this way, Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, in which you once walked, lived, did life. Paul's saying, not only were you dead in sin and had a morally ruined character, but you lived it out. You walked in it. You practiced it. You were good at it. Paul lists a varied kinds of, of wickedness or lawlessness. Some we might put in that more extreme category, and some we, we might put in really, even if we're honest, a not-too-big-a-deal category. But it's all wickedness. It's all, as he says in Galatians, lawlessness. Some of the things we practice, some of the ways we walked. Evil thoughts. Sexual immorality. Theft. Murder. Adultery. Coveting. Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, idleness, practicing homosexuality, malice, Strife, gossip, hatred of God, haughtiness, disobedience to parents, ruthlessness, orgies, drunkenness, quarreling, jealousy, sorcery, enmity, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissension or divisions or obscene talk. Collection of different vices or lawless ways found in many New Testament scriptures. It's important that we recognize that all of these varied sins are wicked ways that do not honor God but instead, they only feed the flesh. They feed the ego of our flesh. They're moral compromises that we think serve us. So that's why we do them. They're a playbook of sorts for the old man. Oh, how desperate we are or were to be born again. Amen? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. The unrepentant sinner is not one who really cares very much to practice peacemaking. Oh, you don't like me? That's all right. I don't like you either. 
we're more inclined to pursue what serves us. And if you're not on board with that, bye. I don't need a peacemaker. I'm okay. You hate me? Fine. I hate you too. Fine. I mean, I, what I'm doing there is I want you to see, like, you hear hatred, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't hate people. But it's casual. It's easy. We found a way just to live there. To be cool with separation and The lost world's view of love is so broken. Partially because they don't know God who is love. So the world's got to come up with some counterfeit and call it love. The, The lost world's counterfeit love is essentially hateful. Because selfish love is only out for itself. And so, yeah, I'll serve you. I'll, I'll play the game as long as you're giving me what I want. And when you stop doing that, then I'm gone. Then I'm gone. I don't love you anymore. So it seems subtle. Selfish sin is the driver for why a father or a mother abandons their children. Or why someone divorces their spouse in pursuit of a a better lover. That's driven by a selfishness that's not being met. And and acceptance of hatred's all right. It's why an employee will steal from the very hand that puts food on their table. That's hatred. Our selfish sin truly is the root of hatred in the world. It's the reason why division has its way in our lives, in our families, and in our relationships. Oh, how we need a Savior. Oh, how desperate we are to be saved. Before we look to verse 4, 5, Consider with me for a moment what God declares is the worthy penalty for our sin. Paul says it really sharply and eloquently and and on the nose in Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the wage you earn, the payment you're rightly due, For sin is death. When we sin, we die. We experience spiritual death. We experience real and complete separation from the one who is life. From God himself. Understand, this is our core identity. It is our most sobering reality. It is our complete and utter spiritual slavery. And God warned Adam in the beginning. The Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. I can't imagine how hooked up that place was. 
all of it. But of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Genesis 2, 16 through 17. And in sin they ate it. Did they die physically? No. But they died spiritually. They were separated from the holy God. They were cast out because of defilement. And it is God's perfect and legal sentence for us who sin. Why? Because God cannot and will not relax his holy standard, his righteous demands. Death is not merely an example of his displeasure. It's not an arbitrary punishment. Rather, it is the perfect legal sentence for violating his holy and worthy supremacy. So what must be done if we have any hope to be made spiritually alive, if we are to be reconciled to the holy God and not eternally damned for our sinful behavior and ways, Death must happen. Blood must be spilled. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And later in Hebrews, we're told that the complete needed blood atonement for fallen human beings, mankind, cannot be fulfilled by animals. Hebrews 10, 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. We needed another's blood who was worthy and fully capable of atoning for all our sin. That's a lot of sin. And I'm not just talking about all of your past, present, or future sin. I'm talking about all of God's people's past, present, and future sin. All of it. This is where we turn to verse 4 and 5 in our passage, and the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into view. The good news of Jesus Christ comes into view. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Paul said it this way in Ephesians 2, 1 through 5. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. Not sick. Dead. Spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
but God. But God. We were vile. We were enslaved. We were committed. We were championship level. We were all in. We were damned. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul's essentially saying the same thing in our passage tonight. Look at it with me. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God Our Savior appeared. He saved us. God saved us. Let's be clear for a minute. Not us. We didn't save us. You didn't save you. What's so amazing is when we consider the absolute deplorable depravity of our condition, rightly and fully deserving God's judgment and wrath, is to see that our salvation was not a turning or a doing of our own, but of God alone. But God, not us. And not others. Also, it was not anyone else who saved us. No one else saved us, for they couldn't offer what was necessary. They might have been willing to die. They might have been willing for their blood to be spilled. But only God. Only the, and the good news is that while God could have completely, 100%, just wiped us out, condemned every one of us in our sin... He chose not to. Instead of righteous wrath being poured out on all, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit chose in love and mercy to pour out mercy on many of us undeserving sinners. But God... We were once, but God. These words need to knock us over. How absolutely dead and utterly desperate we are in our sin for the only one who could save us and deliver us. And he chose to. And he did it. The story of mankind should equal us all drowning in our sin, in our despair, slipping away in our ruin, consumed by our enemies. Enemies in the forms of others, enemies in the forms of lies and deception, in the form of mental sorrow and physical sickness. I want us to feel the weight of our condition and see that no one owed us anything 
especially God. But, but in the end, he's the one, the only one who can save us. And I'm here to tell you tonight that's what he chose to do. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. How did God save us? Notice with me the key is found in verse 4. The goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. This is speaking of the sinless life and sacrificial, substitutional death of Jesus Christ. The only one, the only human who lived perfectly without sin. Romans 3.25 says, God presented him, Jesus, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. John says it in his first letter, 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son Jesus as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Theologians call this penal substitution or substitutionary atonement, which simply means Jesus substituted himself in our place. He suffered. He died physically. His perfect, sinless, holy blood was shed to pay the penalty of our sin. Why? Because death was required. Required as payment for sin. To save us, he had to pay our ransom. He did so to pay the penalty for our sins because the wages of sin is death. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. This is the great substitution of Jesus Christ, the atonement he makes on behalf of his chosen people, guilty sinners. Church, that's why we gather tonight. The death of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. But God chose to save us, many of us, through the sacrificial atonement of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. Perhaps the most Curious thing about Jesus' legacy is the symbol that represents his death, the cross. 
The cross is the most widely known symbol in all the world. In all the history of the world. And when you see a cross, we're reminded of Jesus. Not just his life, but his death. And specifically his death by crucifixion. Death by crucifixion being one of the most horrendous, despicable, painful, and agonizing forms of death. In speaking of crucifixion, it was Cicero who declared that Roman citizens should not even think of the cross, should not speak of the cross, because it was altogether too horrifying for decent Roman citizens to even contemplate or utter. That was the leader of a people who did this. It happened. And he's in love to his people trying to say, don't even think about it. It's so terrible. Crucifixion is so horrendous that we created a word to explain it. The word is excruciating. Maybe you've used that word to try to define really bad pain in an effort to describe the most awful, undesirable pain. The word excruciating literally means from the cross. Perhaps most peculiar about the crucifixion of the cross and the death of Jesus is the fact that Christians, including myself, declare it to be good news. The best news we've ever heard. And I'll just tell you right now, it's my deepest hope that many of you tonight, it is to you the best news you've ever heard. Not just heard with your ears, but heard in a way that you now know and believe it applies to you. How could this be good news? The only truly innocent man to ever live was murdered unjustly in the place of those who were deserving of the death he gave. Romans 5, 6, while we were still weak and at the right time, Jesus died for the ungodly. Church, think, think with me. You don't have to think back very far. Titus 3, 3. We've clearly seen tonight that we were indeed weak and more than that, very spiritually dead and surely ungodly. To remind you, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in, in 
malice and wickedness and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. In love, God the Son takes on flesh. He appears so that he could save us. So that his unmarred, holy, perfect flesh could be ripped apart. And he could take on the wrath due us. There's nothing more important than the death of Jesus. It is literally the crux of human history. It is literally the crux of our faith. Without Jesus' death, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus' resurrection, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no relationship with a good and holy and just God. Just punishment and wrath and suffering rightly do me because of sin. Realize that all that he went through physically leading up to the cross, the beatings, the extra wicked beatings that just peeled his flesh back and then sticking a dry robe to that open gaping back and plowing thorns into his head, mocking him and spitting him, hanging from the cross, gasping for every breath. Those nails splintering his bones, as intolerable, as horrific, as bad as the cross was for Jesus. The real weight, the real sacrifice wasn't the physical in those ways. The real cost on his flesh was the wrath due our sin poured out on him. And you need to see that that is not beatings and thorns and suffocating on the cross. It, that's just a hint, an appetizer for what all the wrath of the holy God poured out on all of our sin is. We can't fathom it. But in Gethsemane, on Thursday night, deeply distressed and troubled, his flesh really preparing for this, he said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He's sweating blood. And he's not overwhelmed at the beatings and, and the suffocation of the cross. He's overwhelmed at his right and full understanding of taking on the wrath due all our sin. Because he's not going to pretend to bear it. He's going to actually bear it. And what does he say? 
Keep me from the cross. No. He says, Abba, Father, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me. Not yet what I will, but what you will. What's that cup he's talking about? It's the cup of wrath. It's what deserving sinners are due for all eternity for betraying the holiness of God. It is God's holy judgment and righteous condemnation and wrath due our sin. The good news tonight, the reason why Christians call this annual Friday Good Friday because Jesus didn't bail out. He stayed. He loved us. He glorified the Father. John 12, 27 through 28, my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which saves and sets us free. Hear it again, church. The goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared and he saved us. What does this mean for us? It means we who believe into Jesus as Savior and Lord are saved by him from the wrath of God. That's Romans 5.9. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word, that big word, propitiation, prefix pro means for. So propitiation brings about a change in God's attitude so that he moves from being an enmity with us. God's wrath is turned away from us and it's put on him. Romans 8.1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath of God no longer sits on those who are in Christ. The holiness of God in this is fully respected, not compromised, because his justice, his perfect justice and wrath was fully given and it's satisfied. And by grace, we are set free. This is why the church loves to sing and worship him. Not only did he take on our deserved wrath, but it means that we receive his righteousness and therefore we are declared righteous in God's eyes. Romans 5.9 says we are justified by his blood. 
this is the wonder and, and, and the beauty of what Jesus accomplished on the cross of Calvary on our behalf. His bloodshed is the righteousness we who trust in Christ are covered with. There's a song we sing about the fountain of his blood covering his people. And if not understood, you could say this is weird or gross. Or, but when you get it, it's crazy phenomenal. So when God in all his holiness looks upon you and I who die to self and trust our lives to Jesus, when he looks upon you and I to consider if we get to enjoy his glory and have communion with him forever, he sees Jesus' perfection and righteousness all over us. He sees Jesus' perfection and righteousness all over us. And he declares us justified. Justified by his blood. This is how God saved us. Saved us by appearing and remaining free of any sin. And then he offered himself perfect and holy and unstained to take on our guilt and shame and stain. In this he gives us his righteousness and we are therefore accepted and adopted by the Holy God into his eternal family. It's our deep desire here at Disciples Church to not do church, but to be God's eternal family to one another and to grow in his truths and to make much of his name and to make disciples of future generations and send them unto the nations until he calls us home. But God, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Please hear me clearly tonight. There is no name under heaven by which you can be saved other than Jesus. And I stand before you tonight genuinely, passionately concerned because some of you are not taking these realities seriously enough. When you look at the cross of Jesus, you need to realize that either Jesus died for you and suffered for you in your place, or you will suffer for eternity. I promise you this is the truth of God's word. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that all the believing into him will not perish but have eternal life. 
So I ask each of you tonight, do you, you, individually, not your mom or dad, not your spouse or your friend, but you, do you believe into him? Do you truly and fully trust everything you are and have to him? If so, you will not perish but have eternal life with him. The flip side is if you don't believe into him and you physically die, you will perish. If you don't believe in the Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins according to the scriptures, I, I, I pray none of you leave here tonight enemies of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There is no hope for you apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. Your sin is real. God's wrath is real. Hell is real. You can't just believe that away. It's happening and it will happen. But so what is also real is true and full forgiveness and new birth through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? At the conclusion of that Good Friday, when Jesus died for our sins, he cried out from the cross, it is finished. John 19.30 A Roman officer standing nearby proclaimed, Truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 27.54 On that Friday night, Jesus cried out from the cross. On this Friday night, will you cry out to him? Will you proclaim that Jesus is your Savior and Lord? If so, many here would love nothing more than to hear that that's what God's doing in you, that that's a gift God's given you, that he declared that this would be the day. We'd love to hear that. We'd love to celebrate that with you, and we'd love to begin to walk a new journey with you in Christ. I pray it's God's will to give you saving faith in Jesus alone on Good Friday. And if not, then very soon. We really believe Scripture is clear to teach that salvation 
belongs to the Lord. So I don't have any dance for you to do or hoop for you to jump through. When God is taking hold of your life, you'll know it. You might not feel like you have an encyclopedia of knowledge, but you'll know clearly, I am a guilty sinner before the holy God, and Jesus is my Savior, and I love him, and I want to serve him the rest of my days. Show me how. If, if this is you, here's what's also really amazing about this. If that's you tonight, then Paul's words in our scripture tonight now apply to you too. Meaning those words describe your former wicked state and ways. You were once. Oh, praise God for his grace and love and the costly sacrifice of his son. Church, may we well up with gratitude and awe and obedience and worship of him above all things. Let's do that now. Let's spend some time singing tonight. As we do, I would encourage you to pray. I'd encourage you to just even though we're together and we're united in many ways, pray to God. Consider the deep words of these songs. Let God go to work in your life. Be glorified by you. Pray with me. Father, you <clears throat> I mean, you created each person here Whether they want to acknowledge that or not, they know it. And for your purposes, they were created. And either way, Scripture tells us that their lives will glorify you. And yet, you have chosen freely under no obligation to pour out your grace on many. And many in this room have received that grace, have been given saving faith, have confessed our sins, and trust their lives to you. And we're joyful to be your family. We're joyful to serve you with our days. We're joyful to fight sin and Take seriously your call on our lives. We want to make much of you. We want to we want to sing out our gratitude and our praise. The truths that have set us free to be on our minds and our hearts and our words and our lives. That Christ would be the new way we'd walk and the new one we'd glorify. We were once, but God, you saved us. All praise.
be to Christ. Hear us now as we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray.